You may be seated. As you're being seated, if you're following along in the Bible this morning, I invite you to turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Today we are talking about the Almighty Dollar. Sometimes it's called the Almighty Dollar because of how we humans tend to put money up on a pedestal, looking to it for things that really only God the Almighty can provide to us. You know, we invest so much energy into making money and spending money and strategizing how we're going to use our money. And it is so easy to put money up on that pedestal thinking that money can be a source to us for identity, a source of significance, a source of security in our lives. Our human hearts are basically idol factories, making things that that are not God, but making them out to be what only God can be to us. And one of the biggest idols in human history is money. Now, I almost called the sermon Dethroning the Almighty Dollar. Dethroning the Almighty Dollar. I decided not to because I thought, you know, some people might misinterpret my intent with that. They might take that as a political statement or as an economic statement. You know, my goal is not this political or economic statement. Instead, it's a spiritual statement. In fact, my goal today is to dethrone the almighty dollar from the angle of taking money off the throne of our lives, off the throne of our hearts, so that we will be able to be fully devoted to God. Now, even Jesus talked in this manner about dethroning the dollar. He used slightly different terms, but he talked about how you can't serve two masters. You have to choose. Are you going to serve God or money? Because he knew how easy it is to elevate God, put it on that pedestal to the point where it does become an idol, to where we do look to it for things that only God can give us. That's what we're going to be looking at today. This is truly a big deal. I mean, even in Jesus, Jesus' own words, you can't serve two masters. You can only serve one, so you need to choose God or money. Now today we are looking at Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Our passage is verses 10 through 20 of that chapter. And I invite us to turn our attention now to the screen where we will hear and see this passage read for us. If you see the poor oppressed in a district, injustice and rights denied, do not be surprised at such things. For one official is eyed by a higher one, and over them both are others higher still. The increase from the land is taken by all. The king himself profits from the fields. Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is vanity. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owners except to feast their eyes on them? The sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether they eat little or much, but as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. I've seen a grievous evil under the sun. Wealth was hoarded to the harm of its owners, or wealth lost through some misfortune, so that when they have children, there is nothing left for them to inherit. Everyone comes naked from their mother's womb, and as everyone comes, so they depart. They take nothing from their toil that they can carry in their hands. This, too, is a grievous evil. As everyone comes, so they depart. And what do they gain since they toil for the wind? All their days they eat in darkness with great frustration, affliction, and anger. Behold, this is what I have observed to be good. 
that it is appropriate for a person to eat, to drink, and to find enjoyment in their toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life God has given them, for this is their lot. Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their toil, this is a gift of God. They seldom reflect on the days of their life because God keeps them occupied with joy in their heart. Now, this sermon, it's not called Dethroning the Almighty Dollar, although it could be. Instead, it's called The Illusion of Money. And today we're going to look from this passage at three illusions of money that are very common in our culture, perhaps even in our own lives. And then we'll turn the corner and look at how we can use money to actually glorify God and to bring joy to our lives. So we're going to be looking, first of all, though, at three illusions that people hold to in relationship to money. And the first illusion is the illusion of satisfaction. The illusion of satisfaction says, if I have enough money, then I will be satisfied in life. In Ecclesiastes 5.10, it says, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. Now, from the outset here, we're talking about money. Let's be clear that money in and of itself is not bad. I mean, this dollar up here, it's morally neutral. It's what we do with money, how we handle money, how we view money that determines whether it's good or bad or perhaps something in between. Now, there's a key word in verse 10 that helps us understand what's going on here. It says, he who loves money, he who loves wealth. You know, money itself is fine. It's when we get to that, that place where we love money that things get kind of messed up. When we begin to cherish money, when we dream about money, when we lust after more and more money, that's when things get messed up. And the illusion of satisfaction again says, if I have enough money, then I'll be satisfied in life. But that begs the question, if money can lead to satisfaction, if we get enough of it, how much is enough? How much money is enough to lead to satisfaction if money actually can lead to satisfaction? Well, this question was actually asked 100 years ago to John Rockefeller. And at that time, he was the richest man in the world. He was asked, Mr. Rockefeller, you have so much money. How much is enough? His famous response, just a little more. Just a little more. And that's what we get into, that treadmill of needing just a little more, just a little bit more. That's what you get into when your heart gets devoted to loving money. You never quite have enough Therefore, you are never truly satisfied because you need just a little bit more and just a little bit more. There is a fascinating book called The Psychology of Money, Timeless Lessons on Wealth, Greed, and Happiness. It's by Morgan Housel. Now, this book, it's not a Christian book by any means. When I read it, I don't actually remember any specific reference to the Bible or Christian-type themes. But at the same time, many of the principles in this book are, are very closely related to biblical principles. In this book on the, on the psychology of money, the psychology of money, Morgan Housel writes, the hardest financial skill is getting the goalpost to stop moving. The hardest financial skill is getting the goalpost to stop 
moving. What he's referring to there is that when a person reaches a new level in terms of their, just their status in life, their lifestyle, uh, economic goals, financial goals, stuff like that, and they think, oh, if I just get there, then I'll be happy. What happens then is we reach that goal, but then the goalpost moves. We move that goalpost further down the field. Then we need a new goal and a new goal. And it just is this endless cycle. And so he says, you know, the hardest financial skill is getting the goalpost to stop moving. Because when we love money, even when we reach one goal, reach, reach a new level in our, our lifestyle, then we move the goalpost down the field even further. Now, there are a couple of factors out in society in our own lives that help to just compel us to keep moving that goalpost. One factor is comparison. It is so easy to compare ourselves with other people. You know, a friend buys a new house, or a coworker pulls up in a nice new fancy car, or the moms at playgroup, or our friends at school have the newest phones. And what happens is we see that and we think, oh, I need an upgrade too. I deserve an upgrade. I want that. We're no longer satisfied with what we have. We think I need something else to satisfy us. That's, that's what happens when we compare ourselves with others, and then that compels us to move that goalpost further down the field. Another factor that, that creates in us that, that desire to move the goalpost down the field is modern marketing. Marketers are spending billions of dollars to convince us that what we currently have is not enough. Instead, if we just buy this product, if we buy this service, if we have that experience, then we will be happier. Then we will be more satisfied in our lives. And so we have these factors working against our satisfaction in terms of comparison and marketing, all compelling us to move that goalpost further and further down the field not being satisfied with where we are. And Kohelet knew that. Kohelet is the author of Ecclesiastes. He said again in verse 10, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. That word vanity, it's a common word in Ecclesiastes saying this is in vain. It's a vain pursuit. You will not be satisfied. You can pursue it, but you're just going to want more and more and more. It's vanity. In fact, study after study, just even in the last decade, even in the last few years, has shown that once a person reaches uh, just a basic level of having their basic needs met in a sustainable and stable manner in terms of enough food, enough water, enough clothing, enough shelter, things like that, it, when those basic needs are met in a sustainable, stable manner, from then on, there is no correlation between a person's wealth and their happiness. No correlation. That once a person's basic needs are met in a stable way, even if they get more money, that's no guarantee at all they're going to be happier in life. Statistically, there's no correlation between wealth and happiness once a person's basic needs are met. And so this just further illustrates the illusion of satisfaction. That if I have enough money, then I will be satisfied in life. This is an illusion. Chasing more money and more stuff will never ultimately satisfy. So that's one illusion, the illusion of satisfaction. The second illusion in this passage is the illusion of security. The illusion of security says if I have enough money, I can be confident about my future. Now this begs the question, can money 
supply us with confidence and security as we look toward our future. And, and I think when you look at the Bible, you look at the experience, you could say, well, maybe somewhat. Because the Bible does commend saving for the future. That's a commendable thing. That can give us you know, some degree of confidence and security regarding the future. But, but just a little bit, just somewhat. Because that feeling of security that money can give is largely an illusion. We see in verse 13, for instance, it says, There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Their riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. So money can be lost. This is one reason why it's not great to just trust wholly in money, because it can be lost. The money you have now could be gone for any number of reasons in a year from now. It could be due to a a poor investment decision, like we see in verse 13, this bad venture that caused the loss of money. It could be because of a stock market crash. It could be because of a divorce that you don't see coming, but comes even against your will. It just sucks you dry of money. Or maybe your financial advisor embezzles money from you. Or or a company in which you have money invested goes bankrupt. It's not FDIC insured and you lose gobs of money. Maybe there's a lawsuit that drains you financially. Did you know that, that you are six times more likely to be sued than you are to have your house burned down? There are all kinds of ways that someone could lose money. And even if we don't lose money, money has no power to protect us from some of those things that just ravage our lives for the future, or at least have the potential to do so. Things like cancer and heart attacks and strokes, car accidents. Money has little to no ability to protect us from these things that can maim someone, that can take their life. I think about Kobe Bryant. He had lots of money. But his money did not protect him one bit from dying in that helicopter crash. Now, having sufficient money can certainly help pay the bills in the future. I mean, it certainly can be helpful in that manner. But at the same time, as a security blanket that protects us from life's biggest challenges, money is relatively weak. It's an illusion of security, by and large. So Kohela has pointed to the illusion of satisfaction, the illusion of security. And then he goes on to point to the illusion of success. The illusion of success says, if I have enough money, then I am successful. In verse 15, he says, as a man comes from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there for him who toils for the wind? There are no U-Hauls pulled behind hearses. And even if there were, you know, the stuff in the U-Haul going to the cemetery for the deceased person would not help that person one bit. I mean, you think about the tombs of ancient Egyptian kings like King Tut. Their tombs are full of vast amounts of wealth. But does that wealth in that tomb help the deceased king at all? No. No, the person who dies with the most toys still dies. And this is why Kohelet describes the endless pursuit of wealth as a chasing after the wind. That you're chasing something you're never going to be able to catch, even if you think you can grab a hold of it. It's going to slip right through your fingers. It's not going to be of any lasting benefit to you. Now, as I worked in the sermon 
I was just pondering in my mind, why are we humans so prone to looking to money as a measure of our success? I was processing that one morning of why are we so prone to looking to money and the things money can buy as a measure of our success? And I thought about myself because earlier in life, I mean, I was so prone to looking to stuff, looking to my truck, looking to my stereo, looking to stuff that money could buy, dreaming about the future of, you know, being at least moderately wealthy when I grew up. You know, dreaming about those things. That, that was part of my life. But why are we as humans so prone to looking to money and stuff as measures of our success? And one of the things that I finally settled on is because money is measurable. It is tangible. It's nice to be able to measure how we are doing, measure our success. And the reality is most of the things that are truly important in our lives are difficult to measure. You think about love or joy or character or glorifying God. I would say these are better measures of true success in life, love, joy, character, glorifying God. But how do you measure those things? I mean, it doesn't really make much sense to say, hey, I have 15 bushels of love. That doesn't make sense. I mean, it wouldn't make much sense to say, hey, I'm doing pretty well because I have 12 gigabytes of joy this year. And last year I only had 9 gigabytes. I'm doing so much better now. I mean, how do you measure something like that? I mean, even on social media, like on Facebook, I mean, you could say, hey, I have 3,572 friends. Or you look at someone else who has that many friends. I mean, that's quantifiable at least. But that number tells us nothing about the quality of those relationships. That number tells us nothing about whether that person is truly happy. Things like love, character, joy, and glorifying God, they're important. But they're very challenging to, to quantify very challenging to measure. And on top of that, things like love and joy and character and glorifying God are not quick to impress those around us. And there's something about us as humans that likes to impress others. We like to be noticed in various ways. And it's a lot easier to be noticed for money or for possessions than it is for love and joy and character and glorifying God and things like that. I mean, if success could be measured by money, then people like Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates would certainly be some of the most successful people in the world. But this begs the question of, is money actually the best measurement of success? And I would say no. I don't think that money is the best measurement of success. And I actually think that men like Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos or women who are super wealthy like that, I imagine that they would say as well, you know, money is not actually the very best measurement of success. I mean, if measurement was a great measure, if money was a great measurement of success and success led to happiness, then people like Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates should be some of the happiest people in the world. But I would say they probably are not among the very most happiest people in the world. I bet that both of them would gladly trade billions of dollars to have a super happy, life giving marriage. But the reality is money cannot buy love, nor can it buy joy or character or even glorifying God in and of itself. In fact, a person can have lots of money and still be miserable. 
In fact, Kohelet points this out in verse 17 of Ecclesiastes 5. He talks about a man whose love of money is actually eating him alive. He says, Moreover, all this man's days he eats in darkness, in much vexation, sickness, and anger. He's describing someone kind of like Ebenezer Scrooge, who, who has gobs of money, but is lonely and is miserable. To me, that does not sound anything like success. Let me just give you an example of how poor of an indicator fancy stuff is in terms of indicating how, how wealthy or how successful someone is. It comes again from this book, The Psychology of Money. The author writes, Someone driving a $100,000 car might be wealthy, but the only data point you have about their wealth is that they have $100,000 less than they did before they bought the car or $100,000 more in debt. That's all you know about them. We tend to judge wealth by what we see because that's the information we have in front of us. We can't see people's bank accounts or brokerage statements, so we rely on outward appearance to gauge financial success. Cars, homes, Instagram photos. You know, it's entirely possible to have a woman who drives a 15-year-old Honda Accord with 200,000 miles who has more money than the guy who rolls up in a brand new shiny Mercedes. That is entirely possible because we have no idea which one of them actually has more money. And frankly, it doesn't matter because money cannot buy success. Money is not a good indicator of a person's level of satisfaction or of their security in life. Now back here to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Kohela has pointed out these three illusions of money. They are so common and were common in his culture, still common today. But then he turns and offers a different tone, different perspective on finances, on possessions, and on other parts of life. Picking up in verse 18, he says, Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun for the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. So essentially these last verses of Ecclesiastes 5, verses 18 through 20, are calling us to enjoy the journey. Enjoy the journey. And along the way, treat money and the things that money can buy as gifts from God to be enjoyed and shared, but never worshipped. He says, you know, eat, drink, find enjoyment in what you're doing and recognize that everything good that you have is a gift from God to be enjoyed and to give him the glory and thanks for it. I want to read verse 19 again, this time out of the New International Version. It says, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their toil, this is a gift from God. Now what this is, is a call to us to enjoy our lives now. Not just to wish our lives away, dreaming and hoping for the better future. Not to keep moving the goalposts further down the field, just saying, well, if I just get that, then I'll be happy. Then I'll get that. Then I'll get that. No, it's a call to enjoy the journey. Enjoy the life that we have now. If you're eating something tasty, 
Enjoy it. Give thanks to God for it. Relish it. If you're enjoying the sunshine or green grass, be thankful for those things. Enjoy the beautiful lake that we have access to. Enjoy and appreciate and treasure and value those conversations with great friends. Enjoy that time you have to read a book curled up on the couch with your cup of coffee. You know, relish silly games with the kids. Even that might annoy you a little bit because you think, oh, I'd rather be doing this. But you know what? Enjoy the journey. Treasure the moment. I don't know about you, but for me, it's helpful to hear that. I think I need to hear that because life is sometimes hard. And it's easy to project in the future just thinking, oh, if, if, if we just get to that or if my kids just get a little bit older, a little bit easier. You know, I think this is such wisdom here. Of enjoy the journey. Eat, drink, enjoy what we're doing now. We don't know what's going to happen in the future. And stop worrying about what's happening in the future. Just enjoy the now and give thanks to God for the blessings that you have now. Verse 20, Kohelet says, For he will not much remember the days of his life, because God keeps him occupied with the joy in his heart. Remember, a big shadow hanging over the whole book of Ecclesiastes is that reality of death. And there's this almost countdown to when death comes. That's like a shadow that's it's just poisoning the whole view of everything that's taking place here. But here's some hope in verse 20. It shows that if we enjoy the journey, then we're not going to be on that countdown with that shadow of death hanging over us the whole way. It says, He will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Kohel is describing a person who's so engaged in the moment, so enjoying the little blessings of each day and giving thanks to God for them. That this person is not worried about their future or worried about death simply because they're enjoying the journey that God has given, given them now. Now in each sermon in this series, we're taking a step back near the end of it just to look at the passage through the lens of the gospel and of our lives. And as I do that with this passage, the word that comes to mind is the word contentment. Contentment is being satisfied with what you already have. I want to turn, turn our attention back to uh, chapter 5, verse 19. It says, When God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their toil, this is a gift of God. It's a picture of someone who is content. And there is a key phrase right in the middle that says, To accept their lot. To accept our lot means to be satisfied with the circumstances that we have in our lives now. Not just to be yearning for that next thing. Not to keep moving the goalposts, just saying, if I get there, if I get there. But it's understanding, you know, our circumstances may not be ideal. But God, I want to be satisfied with what I have now. I want to be satisfied in you right now. Rather than feeling like we need something more in order to be fulfilled. That's what contentment is. And so if we want contentment, then in our relationship with money and possessions, we need to stop moving the goalposts. Stop moving the goalposts, thinking if I just get that, then I'll be satisfied, because that's just an illusion. At the end of this book on the psychology of money, the author writes about his own family. He says, We now live considerably below our means, which tells you little about our income and more about our decision to maintain a lifestyle that we established in our 20s. If there's a part of our household financial plan I'm proud of, it's that we got the goalpost of lifestyle desires to stop moving at a young age. Our savings rate is fairly high, 
but we rarely feel like we're repressively frugal because our aspirations for more stuff haven't moved much. That's a picture of being content with what you have rather than moving those goalposts on and on down the field. And I think for me, this is something, this is a topic that speaks deeply to my heart. This is a topic that God has really worked my life a lot in because when I was younger, especially in my teenage years, my early 20s, I was one of the more materialistic people that you could meet. But I think God's, in large part, brought me to that same type of place, in part because, one, I've seen the illusion of money. I've seen it in other people's lives. I've seen it in my own life, how even though I had a lot of nice stuff when I was younger, I saw it doesn't bring me any closer to being satisfied. It's nice in the moment, but it doesn't ultimately satisfy also, one of the other things that God used to help loosen the grip that money, that idolatry of money and possessions had in my heart was that in my 20s, I didn't have much money. When I got out of college, my first job in campus ministry, my gross income was $19,000 a year. It's not a whole lot of money. I lived on it fine. But and actually, that was one of the happiest seasons of my life I've ever had. And it had nothing to do with money. It was because of the people I was around the relationships I had, the ministry I was able to be a part of, seeing God work in my life and other people's lives. It was, a, it was a season of life full of joy that was not at all connected to money. And then in my later 20s, I went to seminary, and Shelley and I, we were both working hard, but we still, in large part, were living on loans. We learned how to live very frugally. And in large part, that frugal lifestyle has continued, you know, that frugal mentality of we don't need more stuff. We don't need fanciness because in reality, moving the goalposts is not going to bring greater degrees of satisfaction or happiness anyway. And one of the other things God has done in my life to help loosen the grip of idolatry of money in my life has been giving me a much greater satisfaction for my relationship with Jesus. I've seen more and more experientially that nothing compares to the greatness of knowing him. And that provides a satisfaction that no amount of money or possessions could ever provide. So therefore, in our relationship with God, we need to understand that we have access to immeasurable spiritual, eternal, and soul-satisfying riches through Jesus. That's the place where we can find true contentment and true satisfaction and true security and joy in life. Ephesians 1.3 says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. You know, if your faith is in Jesus, you are rich spiritually. Now, maybe you've not yet accessed those rich spiritual riches. Maybe you're still looking to things of this world to satisfy you. But Jesus can satisfy us with spiritual riches that can fulfill the desires of our hearts in a way that nothing else in this world can. In our relationship with God, we have access to immeasurable spiritual, eternal, and soul-satisfying riches through Jesus. Now, the reality is contentment doesn't mean that we never buy anything new. In fact, there are going to be times where it's wise to buy a house. Or it's going to be wise to buy a newer vehicle. It's good to buy a new phone or to, to you know, pay to go on a vacation or to buy something to enjoy in life. Those are good and godly things as long as they don't become idols that our heart is pursuing. You know, it's good and healthy to have an emergency fund that we build up or to invest for retirement. Those are good, healthy, and godly things. 
But when our contentment is in Christ, what that means is that those things don't become for us a sign of success or, or something we're looking to for satisfaction. We are free to pursue those things or to enjoy those things, but without putting on, on them the weight of satisfaction or security or success because we already have everything we need in our relationship with Jesus. You know, money cannot supply satisfaction or security or success in an ultimate sense, but God can. I want to close just by reading from uh, some of the Apostle Paul's words in 1 Timothy chapter 6. And these words from 1 Timothy 6 echo deeply the words and the principles in Ecclesiastes 5. The Apostle Paul says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up for themselves a, a treasure, lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of a life that is truly life. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you have opened the door through Jesus for a life that is truly life, for eternal life that we don't have to be bound by our sins and by our idolatries that can just hold us in slavery to things that cannot satisfy and that cannot redeem. We thank you that through Jesus we have access to you, to spiritual riches, to eternal riches, that through Jesus there is no condemnation because of our sins. That instead, we can have confidence in our relationship with you. And Lord, I pray that you will fill us each with a deeper joy and satisfaction that comes from knowing you. So that then the things of this world will grow strangely dim. So the things of this world will not pull us in the direction of idolatry. Instead, that we can enjoy the blessings of this world and give you the thanks for them. And ultimately, to give you alone the worship that you are due. So Lord, please expose to us the illusions and the idolatries that our heart holds to and move us then to that place of wholehearted worship of you. And thank you, Lord, that in the midst of circumstances that are ever-changing, that you give us a contentment and a sense of well-being that is not based on circumstances, but that is based on you. We thank you, Lord, for your love for us and pray these things in your name. Amen.